Welcome to another episode of Livewire's Rules of Investing. I'm your host and editor at Livewire, Patrick Polk. Today I'll be sitting down with Alex Pollack, CEO of Loftus Peak, a global fund manager with a focus on investing in listed disruptive businesses. Before starting Loftus Peak, Alex worked at Macquarie Bank, where he signed off on the valuations for both the Seek and Car Sales IPOs. The topic today is global disruptive businesses, such as Google, Facebook, Tencent, and Amazon. We'll be discussing how you separate a Seek from a Guevara when looking at IPOs, whether the Chinese tech firms can challenge the American firms in Western markets, and why this time really is different to the dot-com bubble. In the coming weeks, we'll be interviewing a highly successful Australian small caps manager. If you'd like to hear your question on the show, jump on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, and include a question at the end. I'll pick the best audience submitted question to ask our guest in the upcoming show. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thanks, Patrick. We're here today to talk about big global technology companies. Okay. Um, it Disruption is, companies. Not yeah, so can... much technology companies, but okay. <laughs> um, so there's, they're obviously a big topic at the moment. Um, some of the largest companies in the world and also in China. Um, there's been a lot of discussion that these companies are in a bubble at the moment. It looks very different to 99 to me, but I'd like to hear from you. I mean, do you think that the companies are currently in a bubble or, or not? And how is it different from 99? Um, I don't think it's a bubble right now. The 99-2000 tech wreck was actually all about this idea that, um, that you would fund the losses through equity issuance of new investors. And in a sense, as long as there were new investors to fund the losses, you would keep raising money at ever-increasing valuations. And that's kind of fine, but what was absent from the 99 tech wreck and what's absolutely present now is that a lot of, because the internet was so new and disruption was so new, a lot of companies were raising money, but they didn't actually have a viable business model. So it wasn't that, that, that if they just got through this setup process, that at the end of the process, having raised equity, they would move into profitability. They just actually didn't have a viable business model. The difference between of what is going on right now is that the companies, the Apples and the Facebooks and the Tencents and the Alibabas, have fundamentally incredibly viable business models. And in fact, if you look at what's been going on over the last five or 10 years, these companies are not borrowing. They're not funded by borrowings and neither are they funded by equity issuance. So the difference between 99 and that crash is that the losses were funded by equity issuance. The situation that's going on right now is that none of these big companies are really fundamentally raising any equity at all. I mean, Facebook had an IPO and Google had an IPO, but that was a long time ago and there's been no new capital raised since. And the reason there's been no new capital raised since is because there hasn't needed to be because they're generating so much cash flow that there's absolutely no necessity to go back to equity holders and ask them to fund the losses and neither is there any necessity to go to banks and ask for debt. Uh, and that's the reason that there's no debt essentially in any of these companies. That is the single biggest difference between 
today and 1999, and that's why this isn't a bubble. It's not to say that we can't get periods of overvaluation that are going on right now, but there's not a fundamental hole in the business case for these companies. The business case absolutely works. I talk about this from time to time. The Amazon balance sheet now is 80 or $90 billion. Uh, there's 20 billion of cash on deposit. There's 20 billion of effectively, you know, loans, so to speak, bond holders, bond holders and such. So net, the net debt position of Amazon is zero. There is an 80 billion dollar asset base funded there, and that 80 billion dollars is not funded, as it were, through debt because the net position is cash. The net position is zero for net to, to debt and cash, and neither has it been funded by equity issuance along the way. The $80 billion balance sheet that Amazon has, the plant and equipment, the distribution centres, the, the, not the factories, the call centres, all of that stuff, is funded from their own internally generated cash flow. Very, very different situation to what happened in 1999. I think a lot of people, if you asked a lot of people today, they kind of have the impression that these companies, in a sense, have got dodgy business models and you know, don't run at a profit. And they, they don't run in the classic way that people expect companies to show profits, but they generate truckloads of cash flow, and you can see that in the way that they grow their asset base without recourse to debt or equity issuance. Of course, the old saying, cash is king, and you can see it on the balance sheets, can't you? I mean, uh, Apple holds, I think, around $250 billion of cash, is that right? Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, $250 Aussie, I think, is the number. Uh, and they're not alone. The, the 10 cent balance sheet is, is, is cash rich, the Google balance sheet is cash rich, and on it goes. So uh, there's not a hole at the core of these businesses. They are very profitable businesses. I guess the other thing is, of course, they're intrinsically uh, involved in our everyday lives as well. I mean, Apple's in everybody's pockets, or if it's not an Apple, it's, it's Google. Well, so much of, and, and this kind of, you know, we talk about disruption because it's not really about technology. So much of what has passed for manufacturing over the last hundred years, for argument's sake, is now simply an application of a piece of software. I mean, yes, there is a camera lens on your phone, of course, and someone still makes that camera lens, but all the accompanying mechanisms for image capture, the film, the nitrate, the emulsion, the, uh, you know, the f-stops, that's all been overtaken, as it were, by pieces of software. That, and, and so the manufacturing of the film camera has gone. Um, and, and you can say that for so many different things, you know, tape recorders, CD players, the printed newspaper itself, you know, there's a, 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 a massive list of things that have been basically just subsumed where the manufacturing has been thrown out the window because the process is now or the end product is something that is actually carried out by a piece of software. And we are now rolling into a place in, in, uh, in the next couple of years where energy itself, that which we used to dig out of the ground and burn, won't, uh, we, we won't necessarily source, as part of our energy mix won't come exclusively from fossil fuels, part of the energy mix increasingly will come from renewables, which is not about uh, energy as a fuel, it's about energy as a technology. In other words, there's sunlight, there's wind around us all the time, it's a matter of how you capture that and store it, and, and that's a battery, and then utilise it, for example, in an electric car. And the electric car itself removes whole chains of the manufacturing process, gearboxes, you know, uh, exhaust manifolds, all the stuff that is kind of associated with the internal combustion engine, all that manufacturing, which 
for the car companies adds up to tens and hundreds of billions of dollars is under threat because so much of that drivetrain is going to be taken up simply with a battery uh, and none of the attendant manufacturing of physical uh, drivetrain components related to the internal combustion engine. I think the moving parts, you know, uh, uh, total in, a, in a, an electric car is 90% less. 90% less. That's amazing. Not just the moving parts, the parts total than the car. I mean, of course they have the wheels and the steering wheel and all that stuff, but so much of the rest of the manufacturing component of an internal combustion engine is simply rendered obsolete overnight as a result of moving into uh, an electric car. So um, uh, you talk about, you know, we have these things in our pockets and we do and we're going to drive them and, and you know, we don't take a, cam a picture anymore with a camera, you know, that all happens on a phone. So much of what has passed for things that need to be made are going to be things that are just pieces of software on devices, uh, including indeed our transport as well. So that's where that's going. Well, how about we drill down into a little bit more detail and get, get away from the, the big picture, top level view. Um, of course, you famously were at Macquarie Bank when, uh, and, and were, I believe, the lead analyst that signed off on the Seek and Car Sales IPOs. And on the valuations, that is correct. Yes. Obviously, those companies have both been incredibly successful since listing. Are there any other companies that you can see out there at the moment that have similar attributes that you saw in, in Seek and Car Sales back then? Oh, there's, yeah, there's, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we, we, we have thought for some time Atlassian is one of those companies. Uh, there are others besides, and we're, you know, we've been investors in Atlassian, and, and I dare say we'll be again. Uh, you know, there's, we, we're not, we, we don't struggle for companies that you know, have very uh, robust business models that are absolutely investable. Um, uh, whether there's, there's not as many in Australia as there is around the globe. And that's kind of, that, that just is what it is. That's just a function of a smaller population base, a smaller capital base. You know, it's the ta there's some talent drained offshore, but there's some very clever people in Australia too. And I absolutely take my hat off to the Seek and the Car Sales guys for what they did, which was recognise, you know, the fundamental changes to classified advertising and the removal of the printing press in that process. Uh, but that's that. That's sort of that's happened for 20 years ago now. That's kind of we've moved on from that, you know. And I kind of think about those businesses as you know that that's fine. It's almost like the entree, right? We've had the disruption in media and telecommunications. We've seen that. Now we're moving into the physical world of retailing and transport and and energy. And you know, if media and communications was the entree you know, transport and, uh, and retail and banking indeed is the main course. And the change we've seen thus far is really, I think, nothing compared to what we're going to see in the next 15 years. Remember, as was pointed out to by, you know, the, the thing that killed the dinosaurs wasn't other dinosaurs. <laughs> the thing that killed the dinosaurs was something completely different. The thing that will kill, you know, large chunks of banking and retail isn't other bankers and retailers, it's a, it's, a, it's a paradigm shift, it's a piece of disruption. And that the disruption that's happening right now is a function of the rate of change, because the rate of change is exponentially growing, just as you know, processing power exponentially goes, and that's why we're getting it now, medical too. 
wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about Atlassian and what they're doing. A lot of people, I think, know the name of Atlassian. They're you know, probably some of the most famous Australians out there at the moment. But I think given that it's not listed in Australia, a lot of people aren't familiar with their business uh, model and their products. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that and what appeals to you about that, um, that business. Uh, we like Atlassian because it's a globally scalable group of products that are basically a way to communicate from the chairman all the way down to the shop floor with every part of the business, so to speak. Um, and it's a collaborative tool so that everybody can see what everybody else is doing instead of having to deal with different versions of software and different, um, uh, you know, with different outcomes and different etc. So th those are the things that appeal to us about it. I mean, it's still got a long way to go and there's plenty of competitors. Slack is one and, and there are others besides, but um, it's an interesting company. Definitely. Well, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about IPOs as well, uh, something that you, you've obviously seen a lot of uh, as a fund manager. Um, when you look at, an, at a tech or at a disruptive IPO, how do you separate a company like Seek from a company like Gavera? Uh, Seek had a very clear path to profitability. Gavera only existed because it raised money on the 1999 model that we've already talked about. It, it only continued to exist as a function of the money that it raised from investors uh, to fund its, uh, its expansion, which didn't really have a strong revenue model attached to it. That was never Seek's problem. Seek's problem at the beginning was that it had a, rev a cost base that was higher than its revenue base, but on the, on the, two, uh, the two lines, the revenue line versus the cost line, the cost line was going one way and the revenue line was, going high, was, was rising at a much higher rate. That was never the case with Gavera. Gavera was, you know, Gavera was just obviously a dodgy business from day one, I thought. So it just comes back down to that issue you were discussing before about cash flows and, uh, and having a business model that can actually produce a consistent cash flow. Yeah, yeah, no, there's a fund, you know, Gavera has a fundamentally, doesn't have a fundamental business model. Uh, there are other companies out there. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that Snapchat can't survive. I think it can survive. But Snapchat, Snapchat is dealing with some very serious issues in terms of its monetization, And it's not obvious to me, you know, how well it's going to go in the next five years, even with a complete redesign of the front end. And, and you can you say the same for Twitter as well. I'm not saying these companies are terminal, not at all, but they have they have serious problems, they have very serious problems, in a way that Facebook doesn't. I saw an interesting chart recently that showed the, uh, the number of Instagram stories that people were putting out there. And in the space of just a few months, Instagram stories are now more popular than Snapchat. It's amazing how quickly that, that product's managed to grow. <laughs> um, that's 100% correct. You know, essentially, Facebook just looks at what Snapchat does, copies it. And uh, you know, I think there's even a joke about Evan Spiegel being Facebook's, you know, chief product developer. <laughs> it's not a very kind comment, but anyway. Um, well, look, I'd love to have a look at the different geographies and, and how they compare to each other as well. Um, there's some huge technology or disruptive companies in, in the US and also coming out of China. So uh, as a group, which, which one of these looks more attractive at the moment? The, the big Chinese uh, disruptive companies or the big American-based ones? Um, 
we spend a lot of time looking at the Chinese companies and I personally think that the Chinese companies will outgrow a lot of American companies in the next... And it's, that, that's just a numbers game. There are 1.3 billion Chinese people. There are 300 million American people. Um, um, you know, the Chinese are coming from an underbanked world. Uh, in a sense, they are, as it were, leapfrogging a whole lot of technological or a whole lot of industrial things that are well established in the West that are going to be made obsolete in the West, they are leapfrogging straight, straight into the 21st century with a kind of disruption-based group of models in banking and in retailing in uh, you know, just a stack of different places. Um, and so, and just by virtue of the fact that, that you know, it's four times the size of the US, one, and, um, and the growth that we have seen in the last 20 years in the Chinese economy itself has been so much higher than the US. It looks to me that, that, that the big Chinese disruptors have got a very long way to go, and not just in China. They will find their legs globally in a bunch of different regions, not necessarily in the US immediately and not necessarily in Australia. Southeast Asia and, and, and India as well will, uh, you know, very right places for the, for these, uh, for the Chinese companies to expand. And, um, uh, you know, it's frankly thrilling actually seeing how much potential there exists in some of these Chinese names. And not just the big three, others besides, but, you know. Well, that, that leads pretty naturally into the next part of the question, which is do you think that they could challenge the American companies on their own soil? Do you think the, oh, the search engines could actually come in and, and challenge those, those American companies in US-based search? I, I'm not... I, I, I think there's a fundamental problem with parts of what's going on in China insofar as the command economy has certain implications for the... What am I trying to say here? It has certain implications for creative freedoms and they're more limited in China than they are in the West. And you can't have that kind of limitations on creative freedom and, as it were, be as creative as companies in the West. In, in this, and so search is one of those things that possibly won't work as well, but banking probably will. And, the, you know, and electric cars or driverless cars, you know, there's a whole series of things that are not necessarily tied around the IP side of things as much, but just tied into maybe retail and logistics, where the Chinese can absolutely compete on a global stage and certainly no worse than, than an Amazon can. Uh, I think they struggle a bit more with the IP businesses in the, you know, where the, where the product itself isn't a box of nappies as it were, but is a, is a, is a search for a restaurant or a piece of journalism. They, they, they're going to struggle in the West on those. But in the physical world, no, I, I, I think they absolutely can compete. So Baidu can't be... I don't think Baidu will do as well in the US, and I don't think that's easily translatable. But I think Alibaba will do very well, ultimately, in, in Western economies, not necessarily in the US. There's no impediment to Alibaba doing incredibly well. They just sell stuff, same as Amazon. And they you know, are very creative in the way they do it, just like Amazon is and they're not in any way limited <laughs> in I, that. I, I wonder if, uh, if we might see Ali, Alibaba pop up in Australia sometime very soon. Alibaba already advertises the Ali, the Ali Cloud, 
literally, as you, just, just as you can jump on the AWS cloud or indeed the Microsoft cloud, you can jump on the, AWS, on the Alibaba cloud today and you can consume machine learning services you know, by, the, by, the, by the meter, by the dollar, by the pound, any way you want. So that's already happening. That, that is absolutely already happening. So uh, yeah, no, they're here. They're, they're trying to compete with Amazon Web Services already in Australia and in a bunch of other places around the world as well. Great. Well, it should be interesting to see how that turns out. <laughs> yeah. Um, which of the big US uh, companies do you think, looking out over, say, the next five years, has the brightest future? Not, not necessarily talking about the, the stock price, but just as a company, who do you think will, be, uh, will have the, the, the best growth, the best revenues over the next five years or so? The companies with the most data are probably going to win. And the reason that they're probably going to win is because they're going to know so much about the people that they are, that are providing the data to them that they are kind of going to know, almost before that the people themselves know, when it is that they're going to need you know, a six pack of beer to be delivered to their house. Uh, I think, and so the Economist has talked about this and we've talked about this idea of, 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 as da of data as the new oil. So if you just know that you or I, for example, are you know, booking an Airbnb in New York in uh, three months' time, and we don't necessarily know that individually, but we know that, we know that there is this entity online that, is, uh, that has booked something in New York that is a holiday, that, that they are also going to be programmatically have the ability to serve up restaurant recommendations and car services and theatre services and all the other things that kind of concierge services that go with that. Not because they're reading our email, they actually don't, there's no one reading your email. It doesn't happen like that. I mean, somebody could, in a sense, know all of these things and, and stake you out and make your life hell. That's stalker territory. But actually, that's not what this is about. There are algorithms that simply harvest the data and know that these are the things you're doing and so they'll serve you up the relevant uh, recommendations that are germane to your lifestyle. And so those companies that have the most data about you will be in the position to sell you the most stuff. And which companies have the most data about you? Well, you know, Google's one and Facebook's one and, and Amazon's one. And, and so. It, you know, when, when The Economist talks about data as being the new oil, and we certainly think that that is true, we think that there is a massive thing going on in data that will change the way everybody does everything. Um, and, and, you know, but banking is another classic service, right? You know that, that someone is 29 years old and they've just got married. You don't know them because you're reading their email. You just know because that's what the algorithm says that they've just done because they, so you know that they're serving up bridal services to your wife and they know you're serving up honeymoon destination. That is just gonna be the way that it works. And the people that have access to the tools that allow companies to market to you, having picked up that data, are gonna be in the best position. I mean, it's just obvious, right? So, and I don't believe that people are gonna sit there and go, oh, it's an invasion of my privacy. No one's reading your email. They just, 
it's an algorithm that's reading your email, as it were, and, and putting up recommendations for things that you might want to do. And if you don't do them, the algorithm will get tired after a while and serve you up something different. No, no one's reading 100 billion people's, sorry, 100 billion emails in a week trying to kind of connect all the dots. That's not the way it works. <laughs> anyway. Um, well, I'd love to talk a little bit about the CEOs. Um, so I've got a, a list here of a few uh, very famous CEOs. Um, and I'd love it if you could tell us uh, who impresses you the most and why. Elon Musk, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, Sundar Pichai, Satya Nadella, Tim Cook, Jeff Bezos. Okay. Who impresses you the most? Okay, so I actually think that Musk, I really think this, I think Musk is another Steve Jobs. I, I, like, I, I don't re recall seeing someone with so much facility on the technology on the one hand, so much commercial smarts on the other hand, and so much kind of innate understanding about what is a good product and is a bad product. And the last time I saw that roll up of a capability, it was, was in jobs. So I actually think Musk is, uh, and you know, he's not, he's a young man, he's got a long way to run, but his facility with the technology combined with his understanding about what a good product is, combined with his understanding of finance. I think he's an out-of-the-box CEO. That doesn't mean I think that Tesla's gonna just be a smooth ride. I mean, you know, it's a bumpy thing and you know, there's other things going on in there. And, but his overall vision is, it's, it's very sound. It's unbelievable. Do you think there's a risk that maybe he might take on too many different things? Obviously, he's trying to send humans to Mars. He's trying to, uh, to uh, put uh, solar solar panels on everybody's rooftop. Yeah. He's trying to put cars in everybody's driveway, yes. um, or the, probably more of a service. But that, um, that is the problem with Musk. He's is you know his eyes are as it were bigger than his capabilities. But gee, his capabilities are pretty big. <laughs> so I mean, I think even he understands that the Mars thing isn't going to happen in this generation. But he also, I mean, you know, the electric car frankly, has been sitting under the nose of the auto industry for 40 years. The technology that Musk is doing is not so out of the box. The, the self-driving car is out of the box. Yeah, that's completely new. But the, but the idea of putting a battery inside of a car and making it run, that's actually not that difficult. Uh, that's not to take away from Musk, because it's brilliant what he's done. But he's basically said, yeah, of course we can do this. We have the technology. It isn't that hard. Let's just get on and do it. So. He's a jobs in his own right. Well, that actually is the main part of our interview. However, we've got a series of regular questions that we like to ask every one of our guests. So we'll try and move through these fairly, fairly promptly. Um, but one of the key objectives for the podcast is to teach the audience something that they hadn't taught, thought about before. Could you tell us something important that investors aren't thinking about right now? It might be a risk, a strategy, a cognitive bias, a technology, um, anything you like. Investors uh, are not properly understanding that the pace of change means that the speed at which companies grow and die has significantly increased in the last 30 or 40 years. And the way that manifests is in, an, um, in a heavier bias than is appropriate towards index investing. That, that is my view. So if you 
just kind of look at it quickly, you might say, oh, I want need to have, uh, you know, the index says that cars and energy should be 12, uh, that should be 12% of my portfolio, so I'm going to have 12% of my portfolio in cars and energy and banking will be another 20%, so I'm going to have another 20% in there. At a point when the challenges to traditional energy sources, traditional cars and traditional banking have never been so uh, in, in, immense and intense. That is the number one thing that investors are, mis are misjudging. They are misjudging that the pace of change to date means that this is the pace of change going forward. And that is not what's going on. The pace of change to date has been increasing and it will continue to increase exponentially as it has been doing. And that will create uh, very dramatic impacts in, for, for investors in the next 10 years. And those that are not positioned appropriately will run into trouble. Right, well, uh, this one's a bit, of, a bit more of a light-hearted and fun question. Um, if you could go back in time to when you were finishing university uh, and give yourself one piece of investing, of investing advice, what would it be? Uh, well, to be honest, it would be the thing that I did, which is continue to read widely and continue to you know, investigate thoroughly all ideas, not just those ideas that are basically just relating, related to investment. Continue to understand the political and the geographical and the historical and the investment perspective because it's only by understanding all of those things that you can truly understand how to price a company, in my view. And final question, if the market was going to close for the next five years, starting from tomorrow, and you could only own one business, what would it be? I would own a, I would own a, a data and cloud business. Uh, can you give us a name? The big data companies are important. I, I would, you know, you could choose Amazon, you could choose Google, you could choose uh, Alibaba, you could choose, yeah, you could choose those names. Great, well, thanks for talking to us today. Uh, it's been Fascinating to hear your thoughts. Thanks, Patrick. Well, that's it for another episode of Livewire's Rules of Investing. I hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and submit your questions to be in with a chance of hearing it on an upcoming show. You can find us at livewiremarkets.com or follow us on Twitter at livewiremarkets. We'll be back with another show in two weeks' time when our weekend edition returns. As always, thanks for listening.